Hi, I'm John Stevens. This is Matt Russell. And this is Pod Have Mercy. This is Pod Have Mercy. So, you welcome back. Thank you, John. You <laughs> celebrated your 25th, 25th, it's hard for me to say, 25th anniversary last week. We did. With the show, you, and you did something fun, I hope. Good. We, we kind of had the staycation. We stayed at home. We tried to. COVID uh, anniversary. We tried to dodge our children as much as possible. So it wasn't. How did that work? It wasn't the 25th we were hoping for, but it was one we got. Good. So it was good. It was good. I love that woman. For very, very grateful now but you you all did well i don't want to pry too much into your personal Go ahead, John, life you know you you guys did some <laughs> questions for each other oh, like we did. like uh we did personal relational relational questions yeah. or something so i found something somebody sent me a, a while ago called 30 questions to fall in love and and i and i just put that on my uh on my evernote and i pulled it up and we started just asking each other those questions uh, over the two days we spent together that's amazing. It was great. That's we, awesome. So we ate, we walked, hung out, we just did some yard So work. can you and I just, just pull up one question? Oh, you yeah. And I do one. I like it. Oh, let's get the magic going here, John. Yeah, and your Evernote. <laughs> Not that this is our 25th anniversary, but I mean, it's... We're on our way. We've, we've, we're been, on our way. we've been doing COVID we've podcasts been. for like 18 years. <laughs> In the middle of Saharan Desert. You just want to pick a number. There's there's thirty of them. You just want to pick a number, and I'll. Pull um, what do you think, Jeff? What number? It's the nineteenth episode. Nineteen. This is the nineteenth episode. Okay. We're going to ask question nineteen. If you knew that in one year you would die suddenly, would you change anything about the way you're living? Why? If I knew I was going to die in one year, would I change anything about the way I'm living? Mm-hmm. Well, I think the. I think the correct answer for anyone was would be <laughs> yes, I would change a lot about my life. But, you know, I don't know that I'd change a lot about my life. I try to live like my life in such a way as I don't know how much time I've got. Mm-hmm. Sounds like I'm like a guru or something, which I'm not. I'd probably just too stupid to know any better. <laughs> but I would say, I mean, I... You know, I mean, I think the, I think the, what, the stock answers, I'd quit my job and I'd travel around the world, but I mean, it's COVID. I can't go anywhere anyway, so I might as well <laughs> just figure out how to make this thing work. That would be me. How about you? Yeah. I, I don't know. I think I've, I think I've, I feel like you, I feel like in some ways I'm, I'm where I'm at. I want to be doing what I want to do with the folks I want to do it with. And so I feel like. It's, it's all kind of lined up in this really beautiful way, and I think I would, I might slow down a little to savor, because hmm. uh, at times I can move a little too fast. So I think I'd slow down a little to savor, but I don't know if I'd change anything. You know. Hey, I keep thinking about Thomas Merton says that we're always trying to discover the purpose of our life, hmm. and so. I've met so many people yeah. who struggle with the purpose for their life. Yeah. But he also says that some people's purpose in life is to continually wrestle with what is, what the is their purpose in life. So it, it always, so when people like, I have a new opportunity, I'm going to move. What do you think? Should I, you know, I'm like, dude, you, this is it. You go with, yeah. 
You go with where you feel you yeah. need to go. Yeah. I don't know. I wonder if like when we've talked about the Enneagram in the in the past, if like if if different numbers on the Enneagram struggle with the meaning or purpose and like I know fours do. You know What's um, a four? A, a four on the Enneagram are they're they're kind of really unique numbers. They kinda of live in this heart, head, gut space. They're I think they live out of their 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 heart space um they m- my wife's a four and i'm a seven and so we we said if we uh if we ever write a book it's going to be called tall tales and sad stories because <laughs> the fours like to be in the wall a little they like to kind of feel the pain really and sevens try to stay away from that stuff and eights just deny it altogether don't don't we i mean it's just i don't know an eight are- we own it <clears throat> yeah, you're not afraid of it. You're not afraid of the pain. You call it for what it is. Mm-hmm. You, 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 you know. I think you want to control the pain. Uh, eights want to want to make sure that they're on top of it. They don't like to be on the bottom side of pain. You know. So Usually, the, the eight's basic fear is <clears throat> of being harmed or controlled by others. Yeah. Yeah, controlled by others. Yeah. No, thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I don't want that. <laughs> That's funny. What's the ba- what's four's basic fear? Um, I think losing identity. Let me look. Yeah, at it. it's their it's identity related issue. It is because uh, they struggle with having. What's the uh, seven's fear? I want to know what Matt's fear is. My basic fear is fear of no coffee <laughs> at the podcast. Yeah. Of being deprived and in pain is the basic fear. Being deprived. deprived. Lots been going on in this past week. Yeah. The world is just, we are, we are going to go through this pandemic and come out on the other side. I'm, I'm more and more convinced every day that it will be nothing like we went in. Uh, and anyone who is longing for what it was or thinks it's going to be what it was is going to really have a hard time. Yeah. yeah. What, what do you think about that? I do. I, I think about the the Kubler Ross stages of grief in a sense of when things change abruptly, the process you have to go through to really accept the change, you know. And I think in right now, there's a lot of folks that are either in denial or they're pushing backs against it or they're they're reaching back to to what they want to have happen. And I think the the stages that we're in is, I mean, I think whatever the it's interesting to me. We started talking about this podcast about the future of the church, thinking about that's something that we were going to somehow participate in creating, <laughs> yeah. you know, and now it's here. It's like, Oh, we're adapting to the, the well, now it's like being on that white, white water rapids. You're yeah. just being carried down and you're doing the best you can just to stay just on the to boat stay afloat. until you get to the bottom. But yeah. this is going to be a much longer ride than anyone yeah. thought. Yeah. But, but I also think, I mean, this makes Maybe a little crazy on my part, but there's a part of me that's um, not excited about the pain, not excited about the obviously the 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 turmoil and tension. But there's also I think about that um, text in Hebrews, where Hebrews says that God is shaking the things that can be shaken, so that those things that cannot be shaken will remain. Hmm. Um, and I I don't particularly think that God shakes stuff up, you know, but I think that the reality is, is that our world is shaking and that, um, it gives us a chance to, for me, a chance to really look at what does Christianity mean to me? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus in the world? 
you know, um, what does that, what claim does it have on me? And so in a lot of ways, it's focusing my attention and my faith in these times in ways that um, I could somehow avoid um, outside of it. Well, the, the Bible does use the terminology of a refining fire. Yeah. Where all the dross, you know, sort of, yeah. and then you're left with a pure <laughs> yeah. gold, right? Yeah. And so there's that, that whole concept of, Suffering produces, yeah. you know, uh, patience and endurance, patience, endurance, yeah. endurance, character. Yeah. And I think wherever you are in these days, you're suffering from the loss of something. Yeah. And I'm just afraid that you're going to have the culture. A culture is going to be even more divided with people who refuse to accept that things are changing. Yeah. They don't want to change. They don't want the world to change. And you've got a world that is okay with everything changing, melting, yeah. the dross being, yeah. uh, or, or refining or sifted. And they're okay with that. Yeah. That's what I think you see with the arguments around the COVID deal with science. I think you see it around race. I think you see it around politics. And yeah. it, in some ways it causes more division because just like in any epoch in, in uh, epic in history, you've got people who are trying to hold on to what was, and people who are trying to push to change to what should be or will be or they hope to be, and you've got a lot of people in the middle try to find their place. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. And there's not a there's not a solid place to stand. You know those things that 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 we think. You know whether it's the economy or whether it's kind of some cultural mores, what everything is, is is quaking, and I think that's where, at least as as you and I continue to talk about, you know, being followers of Christ, I think about here's here's this this one that calls his disciples out on something that's not sustainable, the water, you know, and and says that there's something else that can carry you if you keep your eyes on me. So I think in terms of being a pastor and in terms of being Christians in the world today, how do what does it mean to keep our eyes on the one that leads us into unsustainable places? Because hmm. when I look at the future, I think, oh, it doesn't look sustainable. But this is the God that always calls us to the unsustainable places yeah. and sustains. You know, water, desert, you know, 16-year-old girl that's pregnant. I mean, all these things are not sustainable. Mm -hmm. And this is the stories of our faith. You know, I've been struck by the last couple of weeks, and not a lot of people. I think some people have said, well, y'all are talking a lot about race. You know, can we just move on? Uh, or, you know, all you've talked about the last three weeks is racism. And I, I don't know that that's true, although it has been a, a huge central topic of conversation. It makes me think, though, I mean, Jesus, the, the Bible is filled with conversations and teachings and admonitions about racism and racial disparities, Yeah, whether they be Jews and Gentiles or Jews and Samaritans or men and women and, you know, all this, all the sorts of, of conversation. So the fact that we've had, what, three or four weeks of conversation around race and now people, some people, some are willing to be done with that. Mm. I don't know what to make of that. I don't know whether to be, uh, maybe it just speaks to the human condition mm. of people who are in power and 
comfortable, but um, I don't know. Are you a NASCAR fan? Can I be honest, or I don't know? How, but I mean, <laughs> um, you know, no, I'm not. No, that's fine. I'm not. I'm not either. I will say my my brother is a used. My brother used to be a really big NASCAR fan, and my stepfather before he died was a huge NASCAR fan. As a matter of fact, one year for uh, Christmas, I found a a, a a tire. It was a candle made of a. It looked like a NASCAR tire with no tread on it. And had like the the Goodyear whatever yeah. on it, and when you lit it, it smelled like burning rubber. <laughs> and he it loved it because it's what a <laughs> racetrack smelled like. And he used to go with some friends to uh, Talladega or Atlanta uh, Speedway, and they would stay in the in the RV, and they would make a whole weekend of this whole thing. So he was really into the sport, knew all about it, and everything. And man, it's just it's 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 just become center of our culture. Yeah. I think NASCAR as a sport, I would say, is way down there with pickleball and uh, cornhole, <laughs> cornhole, which now is is a big sport because it's the only live sporting event on TV. Uh, NASCAR fans, please forgive us. Yeah. We're joking. Uh, don't send any messages. I, I didn't think turning left was a sport, though, but I just... I don't know. I think there's a great <laughs> skill in driving. And I did learn, I did learn it's a team sport. You know, the drivers yes. are the celebrities, but yeah. there is a team sport. You have a pit crew, yeah. you know, there's a, there's a philosophy of when do you, That's when right. do you pit, when do you gas and how do you change tires? And, and everybody has to operate as a team and you have a, uh, you know, crew chief and you have a spotter and there's just all this levels of communication that I think are fascinating. Yes. But this past week, uh, NASCAR, which has traditionally been considered a southern sport it was born out of running moonshine illegally oh yeah I did not know that. oh yeah it was born out of drivers who were uh you know running across state lines with illegal moonshine running from the law running from the law like the old dukes of hazard you know <laughs> um and it became a sport where they just got on dirt tracks and they raced they raced against each other until it became a a really big major sport with a lot of sponsors. So it's a very Southern sport racing and it's expanded all around. And you have, uh, the only right now top tiered African-American driver, Bubba Wallace, who spoke out in the midst of a lot of the racial, um, issues that we find ourselves, a lot of the conversations around black lives matter and the, the George Floyd, and he spoke out. He said, you know, for too long, we've allowed these Confederate battle flags, the stars and bars, to be flown inside. And he pushed to have those removed. And NASCAR, they, they to their did. credit, said they won't be allowed anymore in... Now, now you got to think about... I'm think shocked. Of, well, this is fascinating to me. Think about who pays your bills and who your fans are. Uh, there's a lot of sports that could come out and say a lot of things, like the NBA... And it's not as harmful for them. But for NASCAR yeah. to do this is potentially much more damaging. To me, I think at least you get some credit because it's potentially way more dangerous for you and your sport to make that move in that direction than it would be maybe for some other sports. And I don't yeah. want to make light of any change that we see in our society, but I don't know. I, I think that's huge. And then, of course... Uh, this past week in Talladega, in Alabama, you know, um, they come into the garage and there's a noose hanging in 
Bubba Wallace's garage. And, of course, there's an investigation going on, but we saw something in Talladega on Monday of this week where all of the pit crews and all of the drivers and everyone pushed his car with him in it up to the front of the line. Really moving. Yeah. They all walked and he They all walked behind him, pushed his car up to the front of all the cars as a symbolic gesture of love and support saying, you know, we're, we're together on this. We're a family on this. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what the church is, but the church broke out on that track because <laughs> it seems like that's what the church does and what Jesus people do is to surround the folks that are the most vulnerable hmm. and, and are cre- and, and have the most to lose and to say no or to say we got you or to stand in solidarity. You know, um, there's something there's something Jesus about that. Yeah, and I and I think that's why it's one of the reasons why, you know, white churches need to talk more yeah. about racism. Yeah, because I yeah. think for far too long, we've been very comfortable in our position. We've been in the we've been in the been in a very privileged position. Yeah, we haven't had to worry about a lot yeah. of things. It's just the thing too about you, you 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 and I talked earlier about white privilege and what churches can do. Um, to make a difference, especially what can white churches do? And I, I've found that uh, something someone sent me I thought was fascinating about white privilege. Hmm. Whenever you say white privilege, I think, well, first off, we, we heard this from Christian Washington a couple of weeks ago, who is a friend of ours and a pastor on staff here at Chapelwood at the Upper Room. And he said something that, that now I have noticed over the last three weeks to be true in every conversation I've had about race with, with white people, that, including myself sometimes, is that we tend to personalize everything related to racism. It's like, well, I, I, I'm friends with black people. Well, I didn't deny them a scholarship. Well, I didn't have slaves. Well, I didn't, you know, what I didn't. Right whatever. And it's this lack of the heritage and the institution and sort of the legacy that we live under, a recognition of that. But the other thing is this white, when you talk about white privilege, people don't want to admit that because they say, you know, I I struggled when I grew up. Everything wasn't given to me. I think about my own life and I grew up, my parents were divorced. Uh, My dad left when I was 14 I started working at 14 years old. You know, nothing was ever given to me. I didn't have a safety net. I didn't have any of that, right? So I had a lot of, I have a lot of hardship and trial and tribulation in my background, but not one issue, not one trial or tribulation or struggle or hardship that I ever faced because of the color of my skin. And, and I would suggest that most of the doors that were open were also open because um, of the system um, that you and I were a part of and are a part of that, um, that, that worked out because of the color of our skin. Well, I happened to be called into ministry into the United Methodist Church, which is one of the whitest denominations there is. And so if you can string a sentence together and, you know, you, you look 
halfway decent and you know how to tie a tie and you don't have crumbs on your shirt, you know, you can uh, actually move up and and do all right. Um, But I'll never forget years ago in Columbus, Georgia, when we were having a conversation about race way before I even knew what any of this stuff meant and what it, I was so ignorant and still am. But I remember a, a pastor in Columbus named Earl James who had almost 40 years in, of ministry under his belt. Yeah. And here I am, brand new. And I got my suit, and I got my tie, and I'm an associate at a big steeple, one of the biggest churches in South Georgia, at St. Luke in Columbus, Georgia. Mm. And he's serving a small black church, Emil Harris. And here I am in my first appointment, and I make what he makes in, after 40 years of ministry. Wow. And I'm just getting started. Wow. And I remember him saying... I don't remember exactly what he said or the way he said it, but I remember it stuck with me, is that I'm not going to have the same opportunities you have. I'm not going to have, you know, I I don't have the availability to to serve the places you're going to serve, never be able to make the money that you're going to make. I mean, that was at the beginning. And all I remember was feeling so mad and angry at him for, like, accusing me, you know what I'm saying, of something. And I look back on it now, and I just think we have a denomination that had a system and a structure in it yeah. that didn't allow for still does black pastors. You know, black pastor serves a black church. Well, there's a limited number of, of black churches, yeah. and those black churches don't pay the same as white churches. They don't have the same number of people. Or, you know, I remember whenever you talked about starting a new church in South Georgia, I, I don't remember them ever planting a black church in a black community. Yeah. And guess what? There's black folk in South Georgia. Hmm. There's a lot of black folk hmm. in South Georgia. <laughs> but no, they would plant, they would put the, the conference money or the new church start money into a suburb in a nice area where that church could survive and raise money or whatever they wanted to do. And that was the consistent pattern. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wonder if like one of the one of the resistance to talking about whiteness is that um, when we begin to do this, like there's a deep sense that like um, I'm holding on to something. I didn't know. It's almost this feeling of um, telling people or feeling like we're being told that you're wrong, right? Um, where I think um, the question is for me, one of the questions that's been helping me is, um, Matt, do you want to be liberated into deeper freedom in Jesus? And if I can answer that, then everything else that has been constructed, socially constructed in my world, um, um, I can say, um, I offer this up to you to liberate me in any way you want to, Jesus, right? And so if the world I was given was really constructed to suit some people and not others, and Jesus calls me to a world in which there's neither Jew nor Greek or slave or free, right? There's this kind of equity that's happening, that I can say, oh, yeah, I was born um, a, a Greek. <laughs> I was born in a, in a privileged Greek Senate kind of family, mm-hmm. you know, or a society. Um, and the call is to uh, become more than that. The call is to work towards something more than that. And so I can look at my whiteness, not as like I'm a bad person, but to say, oh, like, like, like um, fish in the water that they swim in. Oh, this is the water I've been swimming in. Mm-hmm. Of course, I'm going to have these characteristics. Um, and um, what could I, what, 
what journey could I go on that, that might um, bring me liberty out of these things? You know, what might Jesus be doing right now that if I look at something called white privilege and, I, and, and beyond my own resistance, because I, when I was starting this journey, John, I had so much resistance about that word, you know, because pr- like you, I'm not privileged, you know, this is this, 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 and this. And I can step back now on this journey and go, oh, I, I understand what that is. Yeah, yeah, I, I was able to, to navigate this world a lot easier because uh, of the color of my skin. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just the fact that I have to now deconstruct it so it's that thing is open, <laughs> that possibility is open to uh, people of all tribes and nations. And, you know, when I think about the kingdom of God and what it's going to look like, you know, that that's the world we're looking for. You know, we're all gathered around the throne of the Lamb from every tribe and nation, you know, and we're all sisters and brothers, whatever that's going to look like, Right. Yeah. And that's what we're that's what we're fighting for in Houston. I think if you're a Christian, you should. I mean, I've always thought back to organizational culture where they talk about espoused values hmm. versus theories in use. Okay. Espoused values are the things you say you believe in. Hmm. The theories in use are what you actually do, <laughs> the way you actually live. And I found there to be this disconnect in in a lot of organizations, corporations, but particularly in churches where you say, everyone's welcome here, but then you actually don't put into practices, practices, you don't have practices that make everyone feel welcome. Yeah. Right? So the espoused value doesn't match the theory in use. So espoused value will be your mission statement, your vision statement, but your theory and use is what you actually do. And your theory and use is the truth. That's who you are. It's what you do. Mm-hmm. It's like when these football players like rip off somebody's helmet and attack the quarterback and they hit him or, you know, or, or they beat up their girlfriend and it's caught on video or whatever and they go, you know, I want to apologize to those who were offended that's not really who, that's not me. And I'm like, oh, that's you. It wasn't somebody else who did that. Yeah. Now, you might have had a bad moment. That's you. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it, it, that's you. That's mm. who you are. I think um, I, I can tell you of folks in a church who will tell you, they'll say to you, do you believe everybody's welcome in this church? Oh, yeah, I believe everybody's welcome in this church. But if somebody who looked different and didn't fit their definition sat on their pew next to them, the thoughts that would fill their mind or the things they might actually even say yeah. would be repugnant. Right. And yet they'll tell you, I believe everybody's welcome in this church. Yeah. That's where you have a, a, a disconnect between your spouse value and your theory and use. Mm. And what Chris Argerus says in his uh, acknowledge in action is that when we don't recognize that there is a, 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 a div- division there, that's the biggest flaw mm. of transformation and human growth uh. is when we don't see the disconnect. And I'm telling you, I think vast majority of people don't see right. the disconnect. They yeah. really believe the espoused value is the way they live their life. Right. Right. And I- until you get there where you can see it, you really are not ever going to make any growth. 
I, I, I keep coming back to like the gospels and just keep seeing Jesus, the way that he preaches and teaches and who he hangs out with is this massive paradigm, a, a paradigm shift, you know, because, um, because like his espoused values and his, what's the other? Theories in use. Theories in use were lined up, right? So mm-hmm. he, he would talk about, um, um, in the in the Torah, the widow orphan, the stranger, and you see him standing with those folks. You see, you know, with the with the Pharisees say, even the prostitutes and the tax collectors are attracted to him, which wasn't a compliment. And a lot of times, what what works really well is typically people who have a disconnect between espoused values and theories in use are real big. They live in the espoused values. Uh-huh. They talk about those a lot. Yeah. And what Jesus had a tendency to do is he didn't uh, really talk about the espoused uh, values yeah, yeah. until he was confronted with his theories in use. Yeah. So he was eating yeah. dinner with sinners and tax collectors. Yeah, yeah. That's when the fear says, hey, why are hey, you eating with all these sinners? He goes, well, let me tell you, the well don't need a doctor. It's the sick that need let a doctor. Let me tell you why your espoused values so, are causing yeah, you. Yeah. So, so he was confronted in, and this is where you say, um, don't tell me how much you love me, show me how show much me. you love yeah. me. This yeah. is the basic principle of life. And so I'm always, you know, I've learned through the years that the people who send me the emails and who talk a lot and who complain or they have a gripe or they this or they that or whatever, it's all spouse values. And rarely have I seen theories in use from folks. I, I think the the first century church struggled with a form of racism in when you have James and the apostles, right, that wanted to stay in Jerusalem and make it a Jewish sect. So Christianity was going to be a, a reformed movement within the Jewish sect. And when Paul comes along um, um, and really kind of um, pushes Peter into it as well. And Peter ends up showing up at these Gentiles, these folks that are on the other side of the tracks that are not included, that have been kind of the folks that they have denigrated um, and begins to eat with them, right? All this stuff kind of comes, kind of goes nuts because um, no longer are the folks in Jerusalem calling the shots. They're being pulled out into a new way of seeing the world. And in many ways, the church has been able to operate uh, in its own power structure so it doesn't need the world. Um, and so now, with the world kind of in, a, in flux, it's being pulled into a place that says we have to begin to, um, our power structures, our love, or the way that we, we, we view impact, all those things have to be um, discussed. Well, but to, to carry on with that illustration, Peter, talking about, the values that he carried versus theory yeah. and use. He went and he did it, but then he got blowback oh, lots. from the home base. Right. And then he refused to do it. And Paul says, you know, yeah. I had no small dissension and debate. I mean, he basically confronted him. Yeah. And that's a nice way of saying, you know, I let him have it. Yes. For saying, yes. you say you believe in this, and yet you're not willing to sit down and but have you go it. home you, and you, you're you, talking. You separate yourself from them. That's right. And there, there's a racial component there. Absolutely. Um, so this, this is. Look, people who just don't see this in the scripture, it's always been there. And I think we're all becoming more awakened, Mm. aware of it, Mm. which, you know, I'm glad it's happening now. I wish that it had been earlier. But you think about, you think about the timeline. We're only, what, 50 years removed from civil rights in our country. Hmm. 
And a lot of that, as we've talked about here before, still in the South, there's, you have a lot of that that's still in existence um, yeah. in a lot of these cities and towns. I don't know. I mean, it seems like to me, you know, at least for me, but I think a lot of people are waking up like yeah. with the dark night of sleep for generations and generations, which yeah. is really sad. And so I, I actually feel for my black brothers and sisters who are like, it's about damn time yeah, that yeah. you actually started just seeing yeah. like a little bit. Yeah. And I think they know we're not there yet. The fact that we're like where we are yeah, is better than where we were. Yeah. yeah. I think about all the poetry that talks about waking up and staying awake, you know, that, that and even the gospels that talk about, you know, uh, not going to sleep, you know. Um, and how important it is for us to stay awake, to let the Spirit do what the Spirit's going to do in us so that we can become the church that God is calling the church to be in this time and for the future, right? I'm also struck by the, the most, the most, one of the most haunting verses in the Bible to mm -hmm. me is at the end of the Gospel of John when Jesus looks at John and he says, when you were young... You'd rise up in the morning and you'd put on your yeah. your tunic and you'd wrap your belt around you and, and you would go wherever you'd go you wanted where you to wanted go. To, yeah. He says, but when you get old, you rise up and you put on your tunic and someone else fastens a belt around you and they take you to well, places you, you do not wish to go. And I think mm. there's wow. Jesus. I don't know that anyone knows exactly what Jesus is saying. He's just talking about old age. I think he's also talking about there's a time and a place in your life where you're taken to places where you need to go, but you didn't want to go. Yeah. And um, sometimes we don't always go willingly, but there are places that we need to go. Yeah. And I think that's kind of where I feel like I am. Me too. I, I've noticed um, this last couple of weeks as I come to the realization, talking with you and some other folks that in some ways my faith hasn't cost me a lot. You know, it hasn't. It hasn't cost me a, a ton of things. And I, and I feel like with COVID, some of the tension that we're in now, this kind of world that we're looking at, continuing with, I realize, oh, it's going to cost more. You know, it, it, will, it will cost um, um, more than I was uh, hoping it would in some ways. And there's a liberty about that. There's a joy in that. There's a, a deep sense of Jesus is saying, I got you. I got y'all. Just keep walking, you know. Um, it will cost you more. That's a good note to end on. I'm John Stevens. And I'm Matt Russell. And this is Pod Have Mercy.